Father God, we thank you for this time to look at your word together now, and we pray that you help us to understand what this is saying, how it points to Jesus, what it means for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what does it take for someone to believe that Christianity is true and to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? It's easy to think that, that the issue is really one of just evidence and truth. You know, did these things happen in history? If they did, well, the logical thing to do is to trust Jesus and follow him. But uh, many Christians are realising as they talk to non-Christian friends, actually now there are further barriers than simply whether it is true. And actually, see, the issue today for many is that they simply assume there is nothing to argue about. So if someone came to you and said, do you know what, I'm really convinced that the earth is flat. Really convinced that the earth is flat. And I'd really like you to come on a course called Flat Earth Explored. Where we're going we're gonna to lay out the evidence for you. And uh, you're going to get to consider the claims of flat earthers for yourself. No question is off limits. You'll get a free meal. And, you know, the videos of the company, the course, are really well produced. What are you going to say to such an invitation? I think it's pretty obvious, isn't it? I think most of us would say, well, look, there is no point doing that. Because I already know that I'm not going to change my mind on whether the earth is flat. And even more than that, actually, you know, how important is it anyway to spend all this time thinking about this question? Do you see the problem? Simply focusing these days on whether Christianity is true will not persuade the person who, who assumes this kind of belief is in the same category as believing the earth is flat. It's not even worth considering the arguments for it. Waste of time. Why would I want to spend any time at all doing that? And while this may be increasingly true as the UK and the West become more and more secular, actually way back in the 17th century, the Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal recognised this, and he wrote this. He said, we must first make people wish the Christian faith were true and then show that it is. First make people wish the Christian faith were true and then show that it is. In other words, it's not that truth questions don't matter. Truth questions are really important. Of course they matter. It really matters that we're putting our faith in something that's true. But before you can get to considering those questions with people, you, you, you first have to convince them, look, this is good news that Christians believe. And therefore it is worth taking the time to consider the questions of truth. See, if people think Christianity is, you know, well, it's a religion of rules and shackles and authoritarian power, and especially perhaps these days bigotry, you know, if that is what Christianity is, well, no matter, no, 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 no wonder they won't even begin to consider it. But suppose it really is good news. Suppose it really is about sure and certain hope for the future in a suffering world, about real meaning and purpose in life, about forgiveness and finding a fresh start, about personally knowing the God who made us. Isn't that worth taking seriously? 
The story of Joseph and his brothers that we've been looking at over these past weeks is an Old Testament shadow of the gospel, the good news about Jesus that we find in the New Testament. We've seen over and over again how Jesus foreshadows, Joseph rather, foreshadowed Jesus in his life. He experienced rejection at the hands of his brothers. Then he was raised up to rule the world. And it's so striking to think how far apart in history these two accounts are, of Joseph and then later Jesus, and yet how closely matched in some ways they are in, in their themes, which you know, just helps us to see, doesn't it, that the Bible is not simply 66 books with many different human authors, but it's also one book with one divine author. And along the way, as we've been thinking about this, we've been considering big issues of forgiveness and also of how God is in control of all these events. And in chapter 45, all this begins to come together. We're speeding up a little as we head towards the end of Genesis. We skip chapter 44, where Joseph puts one final test before his brothers to see if they will reject their brother Benjamin at the point where it seems that he's been found to have stolen a cup, even though it's been planted there. And uh, Judah makes this impassioned speech where he shows how much he has changed. Remember Judah and all the things that happened with him earlier in chapters 37 and 38. Now he is willing to die for his brother rather than give him up like he gave up Joseph. So that, you know, that chapter is showing us the change that has taken place. And now at the beginning of chapter 45, Joseph's seen all this and he, he realizes there's genuine change here and he can contain himself no longer and now what we see laid out for us in chapter 45 in front of us is what we can call the gospel according to Joseph everything Joseph says and does here points to the good news about Jesus that we also heard in the second reading from from Luke as we'll see so here is the gospel according to Joseph first of all I'm alive. I'm alive. He makes sure he's alone with his brothers, and then he says, verse 3, I am Joseph. Tears pouring down his cheeks, and they are speechless, and they're scared. So he says it again. I am your brother Joseph. So this is a kind of resurrection scene, do you see? As far as the brothers were concerned, Joseph was dead. Dead because they gave him up to slavery, and now they find he's alive. It's the best kind of comeback from death to life and it foreshadows the resurrection of Jesus over 1500 years beforehand now of course with Jesus the difference was that he really was dead you know they really killed him they placed him in the tomb it's not that actually all along he'd been alive because Roman soldiers really knew how to kill people he really was dead they put him in the tomb the disciples went home and heard everyone knew he was dead it was all over and then he was alive again So it's a bit different, but the story of Joseph helps us to understand why the resurrection of Jesus is so central to Christianity. See, it makes all the difference to the brothers that he really is alive, doesn't it? It's not just the idea of him being alive that kind of gets, brings all this change about. The lovely idea and notion, you know, in, his heart, in their hearts, he lives on. No, no, he really is alive. It's not a ghost. It's not wishful thinking. None of those things would change their lives, would they? None of these things would take them back to their father with good news. 
See, as far as they're concerned, they're about to lose another brother in Egypt, either Judah or Benjamin, depending on who ends up being, you know, taking the, the rap or what happens. They have only bad news, they're thinking, to share with their father when they get home. But Joseph actually being alive changes that, changes all of that. See, sometimes people think that it's po- perhaps it's possible to have the positive benefits of Christianity without Jesus really dying and rising from the dead. So someone might say, well, surely, surely we can just have the bits about loving one another and, and being kind to one another, and even, even the, st- the sort of idea of self-sacrifice that you, you get in the story of Jesus dying and rising. You know, that, that's a sort of abstract thing in of itself, and it's a good thing. You know, surely we can kind of commit ourselves to that story without it literally being true that he died and that he literally rose. Now, I was listening to a a debate recently between these two guys, Douglas Murray, who is uh, one of the editors of The Spectator. He's a columnist. He writes in The Spectator. And 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 the guy on the right, who's a a New Testament scholar called Tom Wright. And uh, Douglas Murray has spoken in this kind of way many times, and he wants to call himself a Christian atheist. Now, what does that mean? Well, he, 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 he's, what he's saying is he wants to say we can have the morals and the good things about Christianity and the way of life that it gives you without the God stuff being literally true. But there was this fascinating discussion that took place with with this guy, Tom Wright, who is a New Testament scholar, and he's not someone I would agree with on every point of his theology. But on this, he was really helpful as he responded uh, like this. This is what he said. He said, asking to have all the so-called benefits of Christianity without the resurrection being literally true, which is what Murray is asking for, that is like asking him, as someone who's been happily married for 50 years, if he'd be happy to have the benefits of his marriage, and he listed them as you know, having a lovely home and beautifully cooked meals, w- would he be happy to have all those benefits without actually having a wife? So the benefits of marriage, but no actual wife. And he said, well, no, I wouldn't. Of course not, because it's all about her, and it's all about being with her. And in the same way, Christianity is all about Jesus. It's all about being with him. Christianity isn't just Jesus so that we can have something else, so that we can have a a nice system of how to live, a philosophy of life. Christianity, at the heart of it, is that we have Jesus crucified and risen. And if you take him out of it, you're left with nothing. It's not going to work. And we see that with with Joseph as well. If in the end Joseph is dead, if that's actually what's gone on here, can anyone else on earth really forgive the brothers for what they've done? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. It matters that Jesus really rose. Without him, all we have is a system of rules. Without him, we have nothing. With him, 
we have the possibility of living relationship with the God who made us. Isn't that good news? But in saying it's good news, actually we're assuming something rather important. Because look at how the brothers respond to this news when they hear it first of all in verse 3. Do they think it's good news initially when they hear that their brother is alive? What do they say? Well, their first response is terror. Because Joseph being alive, well, does that mean payback time? Does that mean judgment time for what they've done? Same might be true for Jesus being alive. So they need to hear the next component in this gospel according to Joseph in this chapter. Here's the second thing they need to hear. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. If Joseph was going to punish them for what they did and exact revenge, well, actually, he'd had plenty of opportunity to do that before this point. He could have done the whole big reveal right at the start, a few chapters ago, when they first came, said, look, I'm Joseph, I'm here, and you are going to be punished for what you did. But he didn't. And instead, what he emphasizes to the brothers is how God has clearly been at work all this time. Do you see how he emphasizes it? Don't be distressed or angry, verse 5. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Verse 7, God sent me ahead of you to preserve a remnant. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Verse 9, tell your father, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. This is all part of God's plan to save you from famine. He is in control. And so an obvious question then is, well, does that mean there's nothing to forgive? See, if God is in control and he's kind of made all this happen, are the brothers really responsible for what they did? Now, we're going to come back to that question in a lot more detail in about three weeks' time when we come to the final chapter of Genesis. But we can see here, for the time being, both are true at the same time. God is in control and these brothers need to be forgiven for selling Joseph into slavery. We see that in the way Joseph acts towards them. He's weeping. Yet again, there is, this is a costly thing to do, to forgive them, to let go what they did to him. Weeping and then heaping gifts on them to show everything is okay now. You sold me into slavery, but we are okay. So often in our world, if you think about it, we're driven by the need to have everyone affirm us all the time about everything. And there can be no room for saying we got anything wrong. In fact, unless you positively affirm me and everything about me and everything I do, then actually you hate me. That's the kind of message that we, we get in our world. But the Chris, in the Christian gospel, this message of good news, there is room for saying what I did was wrong please forgive me. And what you did was wrong, I forgive you. One of the problems with insisting people affirm us all the time in every sense, all the time in our culture, is that actually there's no room for forgiveness. There's only an ever-decreasing circle of people around me who are acceptable and haven't yet been cancelled. Well, Joseph would have had every right to cancel his brothers for what they did to him, but instead he issues an invitation. Come and settle here. Go and get your father and your families, and verse 18, bring them back. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you can enjoy the fat of the land. Is that what they deserve? Well, absolutely not. How then could they possibly receive it? 
because Joseph has decided to bear the cost of their sin against him on himself and then to let them in on what is his by right so they can enjoy it too. That is what we have in Christ. See, Jesus has borne the cost of our sin on his own shoulders on the cross so that raised to life again in him we can enjoy the fat of the land. What a wonderful way of describing what is ours in Christ. Not just access to leftovers, not just some hastily prepared sandwiches, but full access to enjoy everything that is Jesus's by right, the intimacy of his relationship with his Father. We have all of that to enjoy. The brothers were terrified initially. Is it good news that Joseph is alive? Yes, you are forgiven. The price has been paid. Come and enjoy the fat of the land. That is our invitation too. Think back then to those dreams in chapter 37. Remember how they first responded to the idea of bowing down to their brother? It seemed so impertinent. And and Joseph seemed so obnoxious as he went on about this dream that he'd been given. Now do you see how apt that was as a picture of what would one day happen? How could they ever bow down to their brother? What a ridiculous idea. Well, only if he became their saviour providing for them what they least deserve. Who wouldn't bow down to such a saviour as Joseph? Who wouldn't bow down to such a saviour as Jesus? See, that invitation to bow down to Jesus, to submit to him as Lord, easily sounds like bad news. And maybe that's what makes us sort of feel like, I'm not sure if I can share this with my my friend, because I feel like I'm sharing bad news no because when we understand who this savior is and what he has done what he offers isn't this then the best news ever to be able to offer come and bow down to this savior who has done all this so the gospel according to joseph i'm alive you are forgiven and then there's a command go and spread the good news. Go and spread the good news. Go and tell your father, Joseph keeps saying through this chapter. Tell him what's happened. Don't quarrel on the way, he says. Maybe he's got a twinkle in his eyes. He says that. He knows what they're capable of, verse 24. But off they go to tell their father, and they arrive, verse 25, and they say to Jacob, Joseph is still alive, and do you know what? He's in fact ruler of all Egypt. What extraordinary news. And Jacob is stunned, and he does not believe them. Now, did you hear that in the second reading, too, that we heard from Luke? Jesus has risen from the dead, and Jesus shows them his hands and his feet. And they did not believe it because of joy and amazement. It's too much to take in. So what does Jesus do? He, He takes some fish, and he eats it in front of them. And here the brothers present Jacob with their evidence. Look at the carts. Which we look back at verse 22, that, you know, they've gone home with loads of new clothing. And it all begins to fall into place. You see, how appropriate for the brothers whose betrayal of Joseph began when they stole his clothes. They stole his robe, didn't they? And now he gives them clothes to take home. How appropriate to give Benjamin 300 shekels of silver. Do you know what? They, they sold Joseph for 20 shekels to those Midianite traders. Now he is giving them 300 to take home, five sets of clothes, 
for Benjamin too. Who else would do that but someone intimately aware of the history of this family and all that's gone on? Who else could have that kind of knowledge and be prepared to offer that kind of grace and forgiveness and mercy? And the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived, and he's convinced, and he's, he, he prepares to go and see Joseph for the third part of this trilogy of visits. We'll see next time. The risen Jesus did the same with his followers. He gave them convincing proof. He commissioned them to go and share the good news with the world. And that commission comes today to us. What is it that stops us from doing that then? Well, maybe we fear being taken for flat earthers. Maybe we need to take a step back and show in our lives and the lives of our church that this good news is good news, that it can't be ignored. What does it mean to be good news people? Maybe to be the kind of friend that someone will come to when they have a crisis. Because they know that you will have wisdom based on the good news you believe, the kind of person that people can open up to. It's in those times that we get the chance to demonstrate, not just that there is good news in the face of the questions that we have about life and death and meaning and purpose and pain and suffering, but we have good news that is attractive, good news that is true, because Jesus died and rose from the dead. The people I can think of who are the most effective speaking to other people about Jesus aren't necessarily the most articulate they're not necessarily the ones who can answer every possible theological question that will come their way but they are the ones who love Jesus and love people and they believe they have good news to share and they love people enough not simply to see them as kind of targets for the next evangelistic endeavor but they love people as people and they pray for them and they share life's ups and downs with them and they don't just have answers, they have questions that provoke interesting discussion that gets people talking about their hopes and dreams, that opens up conversation about these big questions of life that then leads to talk about Jesus. And it may take months, it may take years, but when someone has a, an issue then in their life, a crisis that's going on for them, it's their Christian friend that they then turn to. And that friend is then able to bring Jesus and the gospel to bear on that, on, on that and things happen in their lives. But it starts then, for that, for that Christian, it starts with believing that the message that we have about Jesus really is good news and then living in the light of that. Remember we began this year with uh, growing in faith, 2021. We wanted to identify three people that we're praying for. Are we still doing that? It's a good thing to keep doing. Keep praying or start doing it. Start doing it again. Pray for three people that you can share the good news about Jesus with. Pray for opportunities to share the good news where Jesus says, I am alive. It really happened. You can build your life on this. You can be in relationship with me as your living Lord who is still living in heaven today because he ascended to heaven 40 days after he rose i'm alive you are forgiven he says you don't need to hide you don't need to be ashamed you don't need to rely on people simply affirming you all the time you can be honest you can be real about who you are and what you've done and the ways that you have turned your back on god the ways you've let other people down 
And you can know that God loves you and accepts you and forgives you in Christ and says, come and enjoy the fat of the land. I'm alive, you are forgiven. Now go and spread the good news and trust God with the rest. Let's pray. Father God, would you help us to be good news people who believe this good news for ourselves, who know that Jesus is alive, that we are forgiven when we trust in him, and who then want to share that good news with others. Help us to show that this is good news that is worth taking the time to consider so that people can see the truth of this wonderful news and come and see that Jesus is alive for themselves and know that they too are forgiven. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.